0: meant the same thing as it's meant for a long time. The people that are most hurt by issues like climate, which exacerbate challenges with air pollution, that, which make it more difficult to get clean water, accessible water, which makes it more hot and, and lead to heat. Surgery. All that stuff always hits the most vulnerable, the ones that are already health compromised.
1: That's Gina McCarthy, the president and CEO of NRDC, and the former administrator of the EPA, and assistant administrator for the Office of Air and Radiation under President Obama. She is our guest today, and I am Rev Yearwood, your host of The Coolest Show. I'm so honored to have with me Gina McCarthy. Gina McCarthy is the president and CEO of the National Resources Defense Council, NRDC. Gina has been a leading advocate for smart, successful strategies to protect public health and the environment for more than 30 years. She served as the 13th administrator of the Environmental Protection Agency, the EPA, and as assistant administrator for the Office of Air and Radiation under President Obama. She led initiatives that cut air pollution, protected water resources, strengthened chemical safety, and reduced greenhouse gases to protect more communities from negative health impacts. Gina signed the Clean Power Plan, which set forth the first national standards for reducing carbon emissions from existing power plants, underscoring the country's commitment to domestic climate action and spurring international efforts that help secure the Paris Agreement. The amazing Gina McCarthy. Well, thank you. My, my dear sister Gina, it is so good to see you. Oh, so uh, talk-
0: Rev, it's been too long since we've hung out together.
1: I know, I always, always get excited. I guess for those who are listening. Who is Gina McCarthy?
0: Hey, that's a tough question. Well, um, uh, I'm a uh, beyond middle-aged uh, white woman who grew up um, just south of the city of Boston. My family is, has been firmly planted in Boston for a few generations now. Um, I have, uh, I have a, a husband and three lovely children, Um, who are now in their 30s, and I have two grandchildren, Mm. one of whom is napping downstairs because my (laughs) husband's uh, watching her today. She's only 12 months old. And I think what you need to know about them, my family, is that my my two grandchildren are the reasons why I am adamantly working on climate change, issues of climate change, because I really think it is about them and their future. And so I grew up in the city. I'm still I'm in the city now in Jamaica Plain, which is a really wonderful, culturally diverse kind of place to be. But I'm dying to hang out with people again and not just hang out with you, of course, on Zoom, which is great. Um, but, with, but I really miss the interaction and the vibes you get from other people in, in person. So I've been doing environmental work and, and focusing on health and I must say on equity for a very long time. Um, because I've always seen as as seen pollution as an unequal opportunity killer, um, and it and I care about these issues deeply, and have been working on them all my life from the local level up to President Obama, then over to Harvard, now at NODC, where I'm happy to be. How about you, Rev? what What's your journey here?
1: Yeah, well, you know, it's amazing. This this year marks the 15th anniversary of Hurricane Katrina. So I I wasn't born 15 years ago, (laughs) but that would be my journey into this into this climate space. When I, being from Louisiana and having family and friends in New Orleans, um, literally saw uh, my people um, left behind and dying in the richest country in the world. And at that time, being um, an officer in the Air Force. I had signed up to fight for every American, Republican, Democrat, American, and to see, particularly, my community drowning. I, I just I had to get engaged, and I've been engaged ever since. And, wow. I've been, and so this year marks that and that that occasion when we look back upon those who passed during Hurricane Katrina, but also those who have died because of heartbreak ever since. And as you know, Gina, you know, even before Hurricane Katrina, uh, Louisiana was also called Cancer Alley yeah. because of all the toxins and the pollution in that community. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, if, if, even if it hadn't been for Hurricane Katrina, it would still be people who would be dying because of the pollution, because of the fossil fuel industry. And I think because of that, I've been engaged and I haven't stopped and and I'm not going to stop, you know, in in my world and hip hop, we say can't stop, won't stop. So, Mm uh, you know, we're, we're going to, we're going to keep, keep fighting along the way. Um, you know, it's amazing. You know, when we met, um, we met, we met many, many years ago and many times, Mm -hmm. but I remember you were the person who was when I got my, uh, White House champion of change award. Yeah. Yeah. I was very fortunate to get it presented by you, um, which you may not have realized, I was—I wear a lot of hats. <laughs> and, and so at that occasion, I wore a hat that said Eric Garner. And people asked me then, they said, wow, you can wear any hat you wanna wear, but I wore the hat of Eric Garner. And the reason I wore that hat was because well, Eric Garner died because of police brutality, and he had said those words we, that George Floyd just said, "I can't breathe," that Eric Garner, also in his borough in New York City, lived in a borough that has the most trees, but also received an F for air quality. And even yeah. though Eric Garner died because of police brutality, almost every one of his children had either asthma or emphysema. And so either he was people are dying because of police brutality or they were dying because of pollution. And even his daughter, Erica Garner, who would then fight for, because of his unjust death, she would die in her 20s because of an asthma attack. And so you almost have the situation. So I guess where we are now, as we are now meeting together, I guess my question to you is that after all these years, we're seeing people now discussing climate justice is racial justice. Yeah. Racial justice is climate justice, but from your position, what does
0: that mean? Well, it, it's, mean, it's meant the same thing as it's meant for a long time, um, which, which it really means that, that the people that are most hurt hmm. by issues like climate, which exacerbate challenges with air pollution, that, which make it more difficult to get clean water, accessible water, which makes it more hot and, and lead to heat stroke, all that stuff always hits the most vulnerable, the ones that are already health compromised, right? Because climate change, to me, has been a health problem since day one. Yep. It is, if, if Really, if it were a planetary problem, none of us would give a damn about it because the planet doesn't care just sort of moseys along, gets a little hotter here, a little warmer there. The climate's sort of shift, but it's a people problem. And so I have all my life been involved in in, in environmental issues, it really just pollution issues. I've never been one to do the, you know, the the more conservation efforts, because it's always been about people. I always cared about whether or not people could live healthy lives. I feel like it's a right for people in this country to live healthy lives. I feel like we have a right to clean air and water and that's what i fought for. And I've always known that it always hits the, the, the people of color in poor communities the most. And, and, and ac- actually black people are even harder hit in many particular areas. Hmm. And this is not because of personal deficiencies. This is because of all the other social challenges that they face. They live along roadways with all kinds of cars, right. on near ports, where the air emissions we know kill people. We know they make them sick. We know that's what leads to kids' asthma. We know that they have lack of access to healthy food. We know they have lack of access to health care. So little kids may get asthma because they have exposure to air pollution, and that's what triggers the attacks. But whether they can get to a place that relieves that attack before it takes their lives is a significant question in the, in the African-American and black communities and, com, and, and communities that have been left behind because of their abject poverty. So income disparities, race issues, climate issues, environmental issues are all fundamental to the work that you do as an environmentalist. Or else you simply have had your head in your sand and hasn't figured it out. You know, Rev. We were talking before this started that you know this is this is just one of the most devastating times I think we've all tried to live through, where we feel so helpless. You know, we're stuck in a house facing a pandemic. We're dealing with with basically, you know, a, a police epidemic. Of, of killing black people. We, so, I mean, and, and you add just layer and layer of insanity in Washington, DC, and we're all sitting in our homes, not able to, to sort of break bread with one another and have a couple of beers. And you realize that this is like the one of the worst times ever. You know, when we have military taking over Portland, Oregon and now threatening Chicago, this is not my country this this doesn't even look anywhere near it. And I think one of the can, yeah, thanks, that, that's my dog. and And so I just wanted to 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 mention that in times of difficulty like this, we have to figure out how to get better, not to get back. You know, and one of the interesting things is there is this moment right now where the intersect between race and and environment is and climate in particular is so uh, visible because for the first time you and I have known this forever since you had the experience in, in hurricane Katrina, you knew this. And since I did work at the local health areas, I worked in in health centers to try to figure out how to get kids better when they had eaten lead paint and, and lousy air quality and and all that kind of stuff. Um, We people finally have sort of, all of a sudden awakened to the fact that more Black people are dying from COVID-19 exposure than others. And I sit there wondering, haven't we been talking about this for a while? <laughs> Why is this all of a sudden dawning that this is the outrage now? It's been an outrage forever. It's, you know, so I'm, we do have a moment in time to take lessons from today that I am desperately hoping means that the pivot we make to a better country and a better world and a better health and better care for one another and anti-racism, we have got to get this right. This is a system change that if any piece of it isn't brought together with the others, we will miss the biggest opportunity in your life and mine. To actually chart a better world. And we can't give up on that.
1: No, I agree. I, I you know, you, you sit, you first of all, you know, I'm a big fan of you
0: and <laughs> me too. And, I, and, and, as a,
1: and a friend. And I guess you sit in a very unique position because you've been at the head of EPA. You're now the head of one of the largest uh, organizations. You've been at the table at one of our premier organizations over at Harvard. I guess my question to you is this, you know, as we're, as we're talking, I also feel I'm excited for where we are as a movement. I'm also a little bit frustrated because, you know, when we, when we discuss Katrina and our movement, no movement benefited more from hurricane Katrina than the environmental movement. It was not just the issue of, of our inconvenient truth, but it was our, our issue that we saw people of color being left behind. But it wasn't like when the, even when the Movement for Black Lives came on the scene, literally almost 70 years later, the modern day movement, uh, obviously we had Emmett Till, but from before and many, many, many others, but from Trayvon Martin, this 21st century version of it, it's clear that the movement didn't respond. Yeah. It's clear the movement didn't respond even with Eric Garner. It's clear the movement didn't respond with Sandra Bland. It's clear the movement didn't respond literally person after person after person. So now we're here in 2020, and the movement is clumsily trying to figure its its way yeah. to make sure it does right. And I guess my question to you is that is our movement, which I'm a part of, is our movement though? Has it been so, to be frank, white or I could say Birkenstock, (laughs) is that movement out of touch at a critical time to actually move things forward so that it can actually put climate justice and racial justice together? Is it out of touch in which race has been the tripwire for the climate movement that it can't literally move it forward at this point in time? What's your point? How do you see it from where you sit, from government to nonprofit to the academy?
0: You know, uh, well, the position, well, I, I I don't know how to answer your question. My desperate hope is that we are not going to be so out of touch that we won't be able to be part of the movement forward. I believe that that's what we all hope and expect. That's what we're working towards, but you are not wrong in saying that we have been walking around with our heads up our butts on this issue for a very long time. And there's lots of reasons for that. One is that the environmental movement was was clearly at its heart a a white effort. It was clearly at its heart only getting money from, from wealthy people. These are not the kind of issues that they would voluntarily want to bring to them. You know, I have to admit that, that I, I am doing the very best I can now as head of NRDC to reconcile myself to the fact that this is a movement, not a single issue. I can't fix it. I have to live with the discomfort of knowing that I've been part of this effort whether I liked it or not or intended it or not, to hold this connection back between race and environmentalism and how they are so intimately related. I have been part of that movement for a long time. Yes, I've talked about it. Have I done everything I could know? And so I have to live with that and now use the energy I have to not try to get comfortable again. <laughs> see so it it started off as an essentially white movement, even when those of us who worked in this area wanted to address the racial issues and knew them to be central to this issue we we went at it in the damnedest ways, for example, you know, we made climate a planetary problem, not a people problem we 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 forgot that if you actually want to be a trusted advisor and establish a relationship with people that you listen to them. Don't tell them stuff, you know? So, so like, even from a government perspective, we have programs. Do you want this program? We don't sit down and have a conversation. And I, and I honestly believe some of the, the, I've had some good learnings and, and, uh, from, from very trusted colleagues who were Black and Hispanic and Asian, who, who uh, worked with me uh, in, uh, in Massachusetts when we worked in environmental justice policy. And, and we were sort of inching along. And then in Connecticut, we got an environmental justice law passed. But when I was at EPA, the great learning for me came from place-based initiatives. That was when I learned that, that the thing you do, and I learned this from Mustafa Ali, who both you and I have worked with for years, you, you don't go in selling solutions. You go in offering a hand and a support and a listening opportunity. And when you did that, life changed. But that's not how environmental groups work. Hmm. <laughs> they work on, I've done this policy analysis, this can work. I know how much reductions it's going to get. Let's go out and sell it. So it tends to work at these high levels instead of understanding that it, that it, that it can't work like that. And I think that's why we've been slow to make movement and progress on climate because we was sold big ticket issues you know, like cap and trade and price on carbon for many, but for others, it's been electric vehicles. It's been distinct things where we have failed to make a fundamental connection between climate and human beings and what it means for us yeah. and our health today and how solutions can benefit people today and and, and gotten to the heart of what makes people tick and accept change and then drive demand. And so we've just not, we've not been uh, the motivator and the, the build the base of support that we should have been. We've rushed to judgment and crafted programs and policies rather than rush to expand a tent that is necessary for a democracy to really move in the kind of ways that climate demands.
1: No, yeah. I, I agree with you so much. You know, it's exciting. You mentioned about cap and trade and all those kind of things, and mm-hmm. this actually shows how far we've come. When I look back at what we printed back in 2010 with the Markey waxman bill, yeah, and then now where we are now with the um, uh, Marquee-AOC um, bill, yeah. uh, and how that's, and I look back, I think back to when the I think it was put forth, for instance, um, AOC was 19 and a college student, and now she's in Congress. I guess the one that's encouraging is to see all these young people who are taking these positions, who are literally fighting, they're, they're literally saying that, listen, our parents fought for equality in the 20th century, but we are now fighting for existence in yeah. the 21st century. Yeah. So how does that how do make you feel to see this new vanguard of, of climate leaders um, from AOC to Varsity at Sunrise to uh Jamie Margolin at Zero Hour? How do you and then young women seeing women rising up in the ranks? How do it make you feel in your position?
0: Well, Rev, I can't I can't say that I'm surprised about it being women. Um, just just as a personal issue, I think we do pretty good at these <laughs> issues. Um, I, I always tell people that 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 the facts around climate are that uh, you know uh, that that oh, let me I, I'll think about that uh, that one. Oh yeah, that that climate change is a man-made problem, which is why women need to rule the world, and I think that's very true. But but the the I I have I just get so excited about the young people involved in this issue and all the people that you you just identified they are just have incredible energy and power they are going to carry this issue generationally which we absolutely need because it's going to take another 20 or 30 of years of of real push to make sure we can get a handle on the the, the crisis that we're facing on climate. Uh, but I always make sure that as I'm talking to groups and to them, which I think you and I both spend a lot of time with, with them, is that is that I make sure that I'm telling them that I'm 66 and I'm not going down until we fix this problem. So I do, I'm not patting them on the back and making a handoff like I'm in some you know race passing the baton. I'm still running. I may be a lot slower than I used to be um, and uh, uh, and not quite have the hair color that I used to be, but but I think there's there's a powerful message in having the generations of mine and yours and theirs you know work together. and they have a way of of demanding change and, and that's inspiring. Uh, you know I think I think we're way to my generation live through. Tremendous change. I mean, I was around in the 60s and 70s, and that is what gives me hope. But for some reason, over the course of this issue and and others, we just have lost faith in the ability to innovate our way out of these issues. Our really fundamental understanding of how creative we are as human beings, and the fact that we can change. And we can tackle these issues. And I think we got negative, we got demanding, we got a little obstinate and uppity. All that has to go out of the environmental movement in its entirety. And we have to get back to the work together, be hopeful, inspire people, innovate, and demand that change happen because it's better for everybody Mm. instead of because I like certain kind of light bulbs or cars. I don't give a damn, I almost said the wrong word, about what kind of light bulbs or cars people like. I care whether they actually care about their neighbor's health, whether they care that people can live healthy lives. If you care about that, I can talk to you forever and find lots of reasons to consider you a champion but it comes really down to that. And so Mm -hmm. so we've got to embrace the fact that we have been a pretty white, rich bunch of folks, maybe not personally, but collectively. And we have to embrace the racial justice issues and recognize that climate change is not just a public health problem, but it is an issue of justice. And it does have to do with the, the communities we have divested in, the jobs that we have left behind, not just the jobs of the future. And we have to think about this in a systemic way. or We're just not going to, it's not going to work. And I'll tell you, I don't think the young people are going to stand for it. They're not going to stand for that kind of world. So we we either are going to have to step aside or we're going to have to start moving a bit more quickly.
1: No, I thank you. I thank you for that so much. And I agree with you uh, 100%. I guess knowing how passionate you are and how much you uh, loved the EPA where you used to work and those who those folks who worked with you, how do you feel now seeing it being gutted? How do you feel seeing the Environmental Protection Agency literally becoming the polluters protection agency yeah, and, really and literally seeing them putting and knowing the outcomes, knowing what you know, knowing that the pulling back of the car standards and, and clean air and clean water rules and and knowing what they're trying to do with mercury and everything else, knowing that people will die. Like how how do you how do how do you just let that how do you deal with that?
0: And and they've replaced the, the rules we put in place by actual rules that te- that that by their own analysis says that thousands more people will die. How does that, ha- you know, I don't know. Uh, you know, how do I feel about it? it um, I'm, I'm, you know, I, I don't want to use a technical term, but I'm pissed off. <laughs> I mean, I, re- I really at times am angry, but I think I'm more just, I don't know. I, I, almost it's hard to believe that anybody would go through this kind of effort to be- just make sure that, that they do something for show uh, when they're when they take an oath that they're working for the people in the country, not the polluters, and so so I get angry, but then I get over it and I realize a, a couple of things. One is that one of the reasons I went to NRDC is they have some really they have some really good lawyers. <laughs> And they have sued this, this administration something like 112 or 115 times. And we've had almost 80 of those decisions made by the courts and we've won 90% so far. So I know that what they're doing is wrong. I know what they're doing isn't legal and isn't based on the science. So I don't feel like we can't recover and maybe we just have to look at it as, a, as an opportunity to do more and do things differently. You know, we're going to have to rebuild and we don't have to just put in place what used to be hmm. because we've made so many progress. I mean, you know, revenue work with kids in all kinds of cities and rural areas. There's work going on everywhere. What I try to tell people is to get over the role that will be back soon if all things being equal and and we have to we have to just recognize that no real creativity or movement forward happens at the federal level that hasn't been nurtured at the local and state level so start looking there start recognizing the progress that we can make that gives us this base of support the ideas and the credibility to go further Faster when we recover. So I'm going to take you know all the hope I can get out of today, and I'm going to keep using it to keep myself happy. Uh, because if I'm if I start getting you know bored and and ugly, um, I'm just going to have to keep my Zoom camera off and call it a day. And I'm not ready to do that. I'm not ready. No, How about no. yourself? What do you do to make yourself feel better? You know, <laughs> I, I am, you know, I told you I'm uncomfortable, and people have told me I should be. And I'm I'm accepting that. I don't like it. As an Irish person, I feel like I have a problem. Let's fix it. Move on. T- tell a couple of jokes. Life goes on. We and this is a, a, a slow this is something we're going to have to struggle with for years. How do you Keep
1: yourself up. Well, How you gotta, do you
0: not give up?
1: I think you gotta keep smiling. You know, you should know my my middle name is uh, Patrick, and I have uh, red hair and freckles. I think I'm black Irish, so you should just. Know. <laughs> <laughs> you should just, You should just know. Well,
0: the test is: <laughs> Do you like Guinness?
1: <laughs> yeah, I, listen, and I'm also a president from a pressure from Trinidad, so you gotta like Guinness. So oh, I'm boy. all. Good. <laughs> I'm all in. So yeah,
0: fabulous.
1: fabulous. Oh man, and I think it's actually part of it. I think that right there is that we have to. If it's not fun, you're done. And we have to keep hopeful and be laughing and never give up our faith. I've told so many young people um, that I work with at the Pop Caucus that I don't care. You know, it doesn't matter uh, if you're Christian or Muslim or. Buddhist or Jewish or atheist or agnostic, you got to have something outside of yourself to pull on. Yeah. If you yeah. pull on yourself as you believe you're the only one who can do this work, then you'll become consumed yeah. and you become overwhelmed. And so I think that my my response to that is simply to keep hope, Is is to find something outside of yourself, that you can anchor yourself in to believe that this work is, is, a, is a handoff. Yeah. You know, I lost yeah. a, a dear friend with in John Lewis, and um, he would always discuss about good trouble. And he literally, you know, went to join the ancestors. And now for many of us, we realize that we are, again, in that long line of tradition of civil rights activists and for me, I believe, like you, that climate change is a civil rights issue. Yes, I do. We have a right to clean air. We have a right to clean water. And so we now have to continue this fight. So for me, no, no I'm, I'm with you after this. And then I also think that culture. I do think, and I commend NRDC for having a nice cultural wing where you work with a lot of artists and creatives. But I do think our movement should do better at that. I think that we have a tendency to be kind of a little a little tight. <laughs> um, so I think that we need to, to be much more creative so we can broaden our movement and, and, and have more folks engaged in using music and dance and poetry and theater and all of those things to show the other way of explaining the climate crisis and also the climate opportunity for people as well.
0: Just like the broccoli festival that we went to together. Most oh, definitely. Ew, that, that was definitely. so much fun. I mean, every I mean, all of your events are always filled with music and fun, you know, and that's what life has to be. And and I do you know, I I know that I've been talking about all the the negative parts of the environmental movement. But what, what I think people have to realize, too, is that the environmental movement has struggled like the public health movement to actually get resourced the way that it needs to get resourced. And it's also had the fossil fuel companies now for decades, just, and, and before them, the tobacco companies, just hammering on all of us constantly, trying to, t- to discredit us and to kill the science and, and to, to tell people that we were trying to steal jobs and kill the economy. You know, we have some just natural and persistent enemies that and and we have to we have to use this moment i think to to you're right to elevate ourselves um to to recognize that that we have a freedom now to actually get engaged in issues of race to talk about fairness and equity this is not a side issue any longer that we might choose to be in it just happens to be the world we're in at this point and i'm I'm really excited about some of the work that, that is going on at, at, at NRDC for example you know we have work that we have to do there's no question we have to get more diverse you know our boards making a commitment to diversity but if you look at what's happened over the past five years at NIDC we moved from an organization that was m- much smaller by half than it is today but all the new folks some of which I'm hoping are listening in so I can give them a little bit of a kudo you know the the, the folks that are working on the EFA energy efficiency, uh, th- th- this is this is this is groundbreaking work. This is work that makes all of the ties work. Like new new head. these are the things that make us understand that it's people we're serving, not polluters. And that we can connect the dots between income issues and housing issues and job issues and economy and environment without thinking we're diminishing our focus on any, but just looking at it in a way that connects dots that are integrally related and using that as an opportunity. We have people at NRDC that have come in that are young, that are working in cities across the country, that are working focused on different states, that have partnerships with local community activist groups that where they nurture those relationships, not shy away from them. We're turning a corner in the environmental movement. And this will only accelerate that turn to actually understand that we need to do equity, just, and climate platform because we're working with local grassroots environmental justice groups that have been trying to make a living and make a movement around $25,000 grant, piddly things that get sent to them. And we big greens having been fundamentally building and supporting their their capability, and building up their capacity. And we're changing that. So I think we have great opportunities. We have this SPOC program at, at, at NRDC that is just, is just really, it's, it's about a community-driven effort to grow in a way that recognizes fundamentally issues of race, issues of equity, and issues of income. At its core, it is moving those issues forward and addressing them. So this isn't, I, I don't think any of us can run away from this anymore. And no. I think the young people who are now at, at NRDC that are, that are challenging all of us to think differently are winning big time because they understand that these are systems Racist systems that have been put in place for a long time that we simply need to break. And when we do, everybody will benefit. And so, I'm you got to stay hugely excited, hugely hopeful, and go to broccoli festivals and hear outrageous music with crazy people who want to do nothing but dance. And you got to, you know, go out and have a Guinness and say to yourself, Life ain't that bad. And just pick, pick yourself up, you know, hang out with people you care about. Remember what you, you're here for. You know, you, you just, just mentioned John Lewis. You know, that man was not about what happened yesterday or today or tomorrow. It was about a forever for him. And he's uh, in a place where he's going to watch this forever. And we better be good.
1: No, I agree, Gina. I think, you know, you know, you and I both sit in a very unique position. You now at NRDC um, as the head of that organization. And, you know, speaking of, I also, I'm a hip hop caucus, but also from a Big Green perspective, I'm on the board of the League of Conservation Voters. And I guess the one thing that I would, I want to acts for you, you know, your, your counterpart is Gene Karpinski. I have my, my, my good friend over at LCD, and and others who are leading these organizations. I guess my question to you that what I've seen is a lot of the people who are staff are now saying they don't want to work. They want to work for an anti-racist organization. And so I guess in this, in this, I guess this is probably one of our, our last questions. What can we do to ensure that the folks who are mid-level and higher level management, particularly for Black and indigenous people of color, are in these places and also are safe within our environmental organizations?
0: I think the the first thing you have to do is at least, I I think the first thing to do is, is give them an opportunity to be listened to. You know, when you do that as a, as a person that, that has run organizations before, you hear things that you never expected. You, you don't understand how, how people are perceived and how they perceive others unless you give an open and free opportunity for listening to happen. And so it's extremely important for, not, for us to just look at numbers and quotas and start saying, well, this person ought to be okay. That you got to open up the dialogue and we've got to listen to one another. It's the first thing that, that I think has to happen because there are many people that I never expected them to feel threatened or confined. To th- and, and they are feeling exactly that way. So it has to be a safe place. The very first thing you do as an organization is to look at your own culture to look at how people are being treated, not just from your perspective, but from theirs, to open up opportunities for advancement, to move forward with mentors and internships and fellowships, to give people an opportunity to continue to learn and engage and advance themselves. And you have to pay attention to to your hiring practices and who gets these positions, because for far too long, we have... uh, uh, not been able to bridge cultural divides in a way that gave ev- give everybody a fair opportunity. And it's, a, um, it's just, there's a wealth of learning that has to happen. But Jean and I talk, I know that LCV is working hard at these issues. Rest assured that we will at NRDC. But like any learning moment, it's painful, but it it's, will be healing. We will be able to get better And we would be able to do the job that people expect of any organization that's like NRDC, which is that we have to make sure that our Black colleagues understand that we are not only there to listen to them, but we are there for them and to move them forward. To the extent that they get to have the challenges they want, the recognitions they deserve, the money that they deserve in, the, in a fair shake at advancing. And I think we just have not focused the attention on it. As I said before, we were very comfortable with with our, our, our eyes half open. Uh, they can't be half open anymore.
1: Well, I just want to thank my sister, Gina, for who she is, being a friend. I just think that we, we need to have all of us together in this moment. This is a moment that's about, not just about black, but it's about black and brown and white and red and male and female and straight and gay about humanity. And I just want to say that I hope and pray that the next generation, after we've all gone, looks back upon us and they simply have clean air and clean water. And they can say thank you for us fighting the good fight. Thank you, my sister Gina. Love you much. Look forward to seeing you soon.
0: I love you, Rev. It's great to see you again, and you're one of the heroes for for so many of us, and keep the great work up with all the young people. Uh, We need them and let them know that we're not stepping aside. We're going to be with them and behind them and, and in front as much as we can. God bless you for everything you do. No,
1: you too, my sister. Like what you heard on this episode? Make sure you subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast platform. Follow us at Think 100 Climate and at Hip Hop Caucus on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Visit thecoolestshow.com where you can take action for climate justice right now. You can also learn more about this podcast and donate to Think 100% which is a non-profit project. Thank you for listening and all power to the people.